I always wanted to own the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dad. I just find that very cute. Telegram. Project Arcturus couldn't have succeeded without you. This will get you a little closer to that dream of yours. It's not the Dallas Cowboys, but it's a start. Drop me a line if you're on the East Coast. Hank Scorpio. Yeah, oh, that's Chicago Bears! I think owning the bear is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, explain to me why it isn't. <sighs> you just don't understand football, Marge. Let's go. And coming at you live from the basement of the basement of WCPTA 20 in Chicago. This is a sports cubicle where the inmates run the asylum and our boss, he's going to yell at us on Monday morning because we're working overtime. And you smell that, Paul? I do, unfortunately. You know what that smell is? What is it? That's the smell of the Bears' defeat. You know, it kind of smells pretty damn bad, not going to lie. In, in bowl, Even if it was a win or a loss, it just kind of smells pretty bad seeing this on the fields here. But they're going to discuss that later, so we're going to... We're gonna, we're going to dive past that smell, and I'm going to Febreze it up in here. Cowboys have never smelled good. Yeah, I was just making sure you didn't poo your pants or something. <laughs> but yeah, Mercado and the Marvelous One, they're going to talk about that, and maybe they can tell us what this funky smell is here. And of course, Paisley Karai is going to be joining us. You ever hear of him? Yeah. Yeah, we interviewed him. Of course you heard of him. <laughs> and of course, we got some World Series talk, you know, because uh, I don't know, Paul. I'm getting a little, uh, little nervous for my Phillies. Your Phillies? Weren't you, weren't you rooting for the Padres last series? What does my hat say? <laughs> it's, it's a P for Paul, right? <laughs> yes, the the, the uh, Philadelphia, Paul, the Paulatius Pauls. There you go. They have a record of 0-162. No, they're 1-161. Uh, <laughs> we got that one win. So, Mercado, take it away. The Chicago Bears fall to the Dallas Cowboys 29 to 49, dropping their record to three and five. The Cowboys move to six and two and a disappointing sequel to what was an amazing Monday night is a very frustrating, disappointing Sunday afternoon game in Dallas. So much to get into here on our Bears postgame show on the Sports Cubicle. I'm your host, Mike Mercado. Dan Marver, Devin Tingle, and Paul Shavari throughout the entire show. And it, this was a crazy game. I mean, where do we even start, guys? This this Dallas Cowboys coming out and their first four possessions scoring touchdowns. You're down by a bunch. You're down 14 points in the first quarter. Then you come roaring back, scoring 17 points in the second quarter. But again, giving up another 14 points. And then you come back after halftime. This team, we've given a lot of credit for making adjustments. The defense didn't have adjustments to be make because they were just getting ragdolled by this Dallas offense. Let's get into some of the numbers here, and we can break down this very, very interesting, fascinating, disappointing game. Justin Fields, 17 for 23, 151 yards and two passing touchdowns. You have Khalil Herbert with 16 carries, 99 yards and a touchdown. Justin Fields adds to the rushing with eight carries of his own design plates, which was wonderful. 60 yards and a touchdown. David Montgomery, 15 touches for 53 yards. In the receiving category, Darnell Mooney with five receptions for 70 yards. You had Keneal Harry, that's right, making a huge impact. Two catches, 24 yards, but a touchdown. And Cole Komet makes an appearance. Two catches, 11 yards, but a touchdown. And Eddie Jackson with an interception. We can jump to the Cowboys side really fast because we have to break down what they did to this Bears defense, which we already knew was struggling and that we had a lot of high helps for after that Monday night performance. But this was a different beast on offense that you dealt with and you saw the outcome. Dak Prescott, 21 for 27. 250 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. You saw him get his non-throwing hand scraped up. That was nasty. Dude can't catch a break, but he found a break in this game. 
And in the rushing game, this is where the difference was made. And shout out to the Bears, over 200 yards again rushing. But when you're having Tony Pollard with 14 carries, 131 yards, and three touchdowns, each one of his carries is averaging almost 10 yards a carry. Dak Prescott has 34 yards himself. Malik Davis, in in to give rest for Tony Pollard, has 23 yards himself. And, you know, this was without Zeke. And C.D. Lamb was doing whatever he wanted. Five catches for 77 yards. And it was Michael Gallup getting four catches. And Dalton Schultz getting six catches. This was a clinic by the Dallas Cowboys offense against this Bears defense. And we're looking at total yards. 442 yards for the Dallas Cowboys. And the Bears had 371 of their own, respectively. 131 passing, 240 rushing. This was a really nice offensive game by the Chicago Bears. 23 first downs, 6 of 15 on third down, 2 of 3 on fourth down. You know, and where you start seeing the difference when you're going against a team like Dallas, they allowed four sacks, six big penalties, coughed up the ball. Now, they did have the, the ball for 36 minutes, time of possession, compared to 23. This was a good performance by your Chicago Bears offense. And I think that's what's frustrating and also gives a little a, a gleamer of hope if you're a Bears fan because you did see them hang around with this offense, with this Dallas Cowboys offense that is going to be a contender in November, in December, into January. We already know that. And we already know there was a big discrepancy of talent. That was the big thing that jumped off the screen in this game specifically just the jump of talent on the other side of the field whether it was on offense or defense Micah Parsons made himself known you know if if you missed it you could check it out all over the universe we were on the Bears recap show with the great Jerry Rouse on the Rewind Sports 60 live at this place this past Thursday and it was a wonderful time checking out the links are everywhere on all the socials but I told them Micah Parsons was going to make a a huge impact in this game, even with him having the injury diagnosis heading into it. And sure enough, scoop and score changes the dynamic of that game. A defensive score made by a special player. And then on the offensive side, Dak, we know how special it is. An awesome offensive line for Dallas. Tony Pollard is special. CeeDee Lamb is special. They don't have Zeke there, but Dalton Schultz is special. This is a different level of team that on the other side, you know, Roquan can only do so much. And if, especially if you're not getting as much pressure on the quarterback as they are on yours. You know, Gordon is being, is being singled out. Valor, uh, uh, Valor is being uh, uh, singled out. Eddie Jackson had interception. But they are being targeted. This young secondary, this Bears team, is being targeted. They don't have a run-stop defense. They are – it is a, such a weird place. Here in the in Chicagoland area, if you're a Bears fan, if you're watching football in the NFC North for as many years as some of you have been, you loyal listeners, or if you're brand new to listening to us here on the Sports Cubicle, this is so weird for a Bears fan or somebody who covers the team to be watching an offense carry this team and look competent. And for the I, I would say the, the most encouraging thing Stepping away from the negative, if you're you're looking for moral wins, if you're looking for things to hang your hat on, this offense is growing. And there are significant things happening, moments happening, tangible things you could look at to say, this is going in the right direction. This stat I got on Twitter from Will DeWitt. Follow him on Twitter at Will DeWitt, W-I-1-1 DeWitt. Justin Fields, since the quote-unquote mini-buy. 330 passing yards, three touchdowns, one interception, 142 rushing yards, and two rushing touchdowns, 472 total yards, five touchdowns. Think about where we were after the third game of the season, after a game against the Giants, or the game after the Commanders. Think about how it was after that Thursday game on Amazon. Where you were as a Bears fan, where you were as somebody who was just admiring the team from afar, whether you were somebody from a a fan base of anybody else in the NFC North, it was into question what fields can bring for this Bears team. 
what Lugetsi can do for this offense and the growth of Justin Fields. And I think they have answered it. Only been a few games. And they have only, they won one, they lost another. But the offense doesn't look broken anymore. The offense looks like it doesn't have the right amount of talent. The same type of talent that a team like Philadelphia has, where A.J. Brown can go off for three touchdowns. Or DeAndre Hopkins. Or Alvin Kamara, who obviously is a running back. This team has good running backs. But the idea is teams filled with talent. Jalen Waddle, Tyreek Hill. These guys are out there, and they have changed the way we look at quarterbacks. Change the way we look at Jalen Hurts, Tua Tungavailoa, Josh Allen with Steph Diggs. That it is so important to get these guys a special receiver. Somebody who could change a game, who's a unicorn, who's a matchup nightmare. I like Darnell Mooney. I like Cole Komet. Special, they're good enough to be in the NFL. They're special dudes, right? But in this league, when you want to take that next step, when you want to be where the Cowboys are, where the Bills are, the Eagles are, the Chiefs, you name it, the, the, the Bengals, you need to find special players. This team has a very promising, potentially special talent at quarterback. They have nice running backs. They have an awesome number two or three receiver. They have a, a very good linebacker but they need to do more. And that falls on Ryan Poles. And it is all going to be on him this coming up offseason. Again, I said this on the Thursday live show over on uh, the Rewind Sports 60 as we were live at these plays. That's right, the Sports Cubicle with Devin Tingle, Paul Shavari, Dan Marver, and myself, Mike Mercado. We were live on the air. We are on Roku, on Apple TV. A link on my socials at Mike and Media. Of course, here on the YouTube channel at Mercado Airwaves Network. And you could check out the interview, some of it throughout the entire, depending on how pertinent it is, right here on the Sports Cubicle on WCPT 820 AM that this Bears team, this Bears front office needs to do right by Justin Fields, Matt Eberflus, and all these dudes who are going to be on this roster when it's a next or the first great Bears team. Because you went into this season knowing you were going to have a bunch of dead money on your cap. You knew you were going to go into the season with a bunk offensive line. You knew that you didn't have the quality of player on offense to help out the quarterback that you're evaluating that may not be your dude, but has done everything in his power to be the best player, to get the best out of himself, to put your team in the best position to win, knowing full well that you did nothing to help him and that he's getting another audition. When the last regime put him in a horrible spot to develop. So yeah, you they get the benefit of the doubt. You got to rebuild your team. You got to start from scratch. You got to get draft picks. You got to get money. Okay, you did it. Hopefully, it, it doesn't cost you long-term with your talent on the field right now that you hope to be along, around for a long time. But you dead better come through for them. You better spend money next offseason. You better hit on your draft picks next, uh, next draft. You have no choice. Because the turnaround the NFL is too fast. You're watching right now the parity of the league. And teams, legends of the game coming and guys rising to new positions. And the ones that we thought we anointed might not be the dudes we thought they were. These are people. Things change up and down. You need to strike when the iron's hot. If Justin Fields is that guy, if he is him, as the youth say, you better strike on it. And you better do right by him. You better do right by that fan base. Because if you expect to build a multi-billion dollar stadium and fans pay as much money for season tickets as you're going to demand, you better come through for them. Because I see on that field a team that doesn't quit, that follows their quarterback, and a coach that knows how to coach hard, and an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, an entire staff that makes adjustments and that has grown eight weeks into their careers. I've seen growth. Maybe may not be this huge monumental games, but it's happening and we're seeing it. And we can look back and look at all the changes. And that is something that they can't squander. They can't. Now, before we head out, I, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how can one team look like they did on Thursday, then look how they did on Monday, and then look how they did on Sunday. 
It's all, first of all, it's the NFL. Anything can happen. And specifically, not even just the cliche of any given Sunday, but it is that league. There is so much parity. These teams are so close. Unless you have, like we've been talking about this entire episode, those special guys that make other people special, you're all the same. So the Commanders, it was a Thursday night, weird game, so much different emotion. And on this mini buy, this Bears coaching staff and these players have really taken to changing and going with the flow and making the proper implements to get the best out of themselves and their team. And they've done that. And it came through on a tough Monday night. Look at, there's a lot of good talent on that Patriots team. It may not be in the quarterback, and they might have been in trouble if Zappi was in there instead of Mac Jones. But the fact remains is that game they won, and they went against Bill Belichick, who is the, the Palpatine, the Thanos, the Hannibal Lecter of young quarterbacks, of inefficient offenses, making them look even worse, making it their worst game of their career, making it hell on self, hell itself at Foxborough. That's what this guy does. And the Bears found a way to answer. Justin Fields found a way to answer. That running game found a way to answer. That coaching staff did. So you, you, great things to take to then this game against Dallas. Dallas is the perfect example of, yeah, there's a lot of parity in this league, but there are some teams that just have more of those dudes than you do. And that's what the Cowboys have, whether it's on defense or offense. And the Bears, and more specifically, Ryan Poles, needs to do right by Matt Eberflus to Justin Fields and to this fan base, you the listeners, needs to do right by them. Evaluate correctly. Draft correctly. Sign the proper free agents. And that's, that's the only way that this gets better. There's a lot of pieces here. The foundation is being built. Now it's up to this front office, this ownership, to not cheap out and make sure that the multi-billion dollar house that they're trying to build over at Arlington Heights has the amenities, has all the amenities, and not just in the house, but those players going in there and that staff going in there, that they have all that. Because if you look around the league, why not the Chicago Bears? There's no more excuses. You want to play with the big boys? You want to play with the big dogs? You got to start showing up. You build the foundation. Now let's see what you can do with it. it, it it's a, a frustrating game, a lot of hope, and I get that there's going to be the whole range of emotions. I don't think I can get myself upset about the actual game of, uh, itself that we saw for those 60 minutes. Just the people in charge. All eyes are on you now. And you better not hide. Shout out to Ryan Pulse. He doesn't hide. He does do interviews. He does talk to the media. But it's almost getting to that point. The season's winding now. We're halfway through. And we've, I, I'm starting, we're starting to make our evaluations. And I think we're all feeling a little bit optimistic about what we see at QB1 with number one, Justin Fields himself. Some other nice pieces. But now the guys who were brought in to make this ship turn around, who did all this, this overhaul, who did this demo job, Let's see what they bring to the table. We want to know your thoughts, though, as the Chicago Bears fall to the Dallas Cowboys in Jerry World in Arlington, Texas, 29 to 49, moving their record to three and five. Let us know your thoughts. We're on Twitter at Sports Cubicle TV. I'm on Twitter at Mike M Media. You can follow Devin at Really Devin and Paul Shavari at Paul Shavari. We got more coming up next here on the Sports Cubicle. It's the marvelous one, Dan Marver. It's Devin Single. It's Paul Shavari. I'm Mike Mercado. Now, before I was rudely interrupted, uh, Paul, it's not looking good for my uh, Paulacious Pauls. I, I mean, my Philadelphia Phillies right now here. And I feel like we can we can dive a little bit deeper into there. I mean, you know, game one had that storybook ending, but it's a best of seven series. Yeah, but winning game one is good. I mean, I, I don't know the percentage, but I want to say the majority of teams that win game one go on to eventually win the series. So that, that can only help them because now at this point, stealing that game in Houston, no matter what, even if they lose game two, they have home field advantage. The Phillies come back to Philadelphia right now, games three, four, and five. If they sweep those three games, which I don't think they will, but if they sweep those three games, we're talking about a Philadelphia Phillies World Series title, which would only be the third time for that franchise. I mean, definitely so. And I mean, it, I feel like winning game one was crucial because it really stopped the uh, Astros' momentum coming into this. And of course, 
yesterday's game, so otherwise they took an early lead and just held on to it. It, it stopped a win streak, too. The Astros would have tied the record for most wins to start a postseason if they would have won on Friday. And then the cra- the craziness of, you know, the last time a team blew a 5 nothing lead was a Dusty Baker-managed team back in 2002, the San Francisco Giants. So it's, I, I mean, if the Astros don't win this series, it, you know, obviously Dusty's a Hall of Famer, but don't you kind of have to look at it and be like, well, wouldn't a Hall of Fame manager be able to win a World Series out of the three times he went, you know, presumably? And this would be the one that's setting up to work out. I think in the long run, this will be the one. He's gonna be he's gonna Martin Scorsese. He's finally gonna get one late in his career, you know, and, and it's it's gonna look good on his Hall of Fame resume having this title. But they still have to get there first. Pitching is something that was concerning me coming into the series. Now that the teams have started their best two pitchers each. Verlander, uh, Justin Verlander, who's never won a World Series game before and was cruising in game one until he kind of hit that wall in the uh, was it the fourth inning when he finally got torched off? I thought it was later than that. Um, but, you know, eventually just left the game tied at five. Um, you know, he's 0-6 lifetime in the World Series. Can't get that Can't get that win. He might show up later in the series. But another Hall of Famer that has this, this like, um, just sort of blot on his Hall of Fame resume of he can't win the big one. Then they turn to Framber Valdez in game two. And that's the true ace of the Astros. And that's who we really saw. But surprisingly, on the other end of it, though, okay, so Aaron Nola was due up to start ahead of Zach Wheeler in Game 1. He puts in a decent performance, but he did give up the two home runs to Kyle Tucker. But then you have, you know, and and then, of course, the pitching usage by Rob Thompson, and I want to get to that in a moment. But in Game 2, you have Zach Wheeler go up, and he just kind of struggles from the start, gives up three big hits to start the game last night. Uh, He's supposed to be the best pitcher for the Phillies. And I think that's where, you know, you really got to say, well, it doesn't look good for the Phillies if their best guy got on the mound and couldn't win for them. But but then the pitching usage of the series. So I thought that Ranger Suarez would be designated to be the game three starter, but they go ahead and use him in, in that game. Um, you know, he comes in after Zach Eflin, which was another one that I know Eflin's at a point in his career where he's not really so much of a starter anymore. But I would have thought, even in this modern day of baseball, how they use pitchers, you still would want to have a guy that's kind of almost true to form as a starter to get you the four innings, maybe five innings that you'd need to and then give way to your bullpen. But the way they use their pitchers in game one, Devin, you know, you have, of course, Nola starts off. He gets you to the fifth inning. Then they, they go and use Jose Alvarado, who normally is like a seventh, eighth, ninth guy, like late high leverage guy, but it was a high leverage moment. He keeps it clean for them. Uh, then they go to Zach Eflin, who puts in, uh, you know, one and a third innings. Then it goes to Ranger Suarez. Then you have the late inning guys, Sir Anthony Dominguez, David Robertson to get the save. And and that's, you know, how they come back, you know, with the JT Real Muto home run in the 10th inning and win on Friday. Um, but I thought that was interesting that they'd use um, Alvarado in an in a, a, a early situation and then that they'd go to Ranger Suarez and Zach Eflin. So now that you're forced to use Noah Syndergaard to start in Game 3, and that's a guy that lately hasn't been as good of a starter as he's been in the past, but has been like a middle reliever. So, I, so I'm just curious to see, and especially with no break three games in a row on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, how is Rob Thompson, the Phillies manager, going to utilize his pitching staff? I'm assuming at this point you're probably going to expect if if Nola's not starting Game Four, he's definitely starting Game Five, which just then makes me wonder who's your Game Four starter going to be, and that might depend on if they win or lose on Monday night. And this is what I love about a World Series and a best of seven and true days off, like the two travel days going from Houston to Philly, and then Philly if they go back to Houston. It's it's been a great series so far, and I've really liked it, but. I think this is what this was my worry at the beginning of the season of the Phillies is after Nola and Wheeler, what do you got? And and is Rob Thompson the type of manager that's going to be able to find that happy sort of use, that happy mix of pitchers in situations to keep them afloat in the series to win? And that's my biggest concern because as you mentioned with Game One, even with Game Two, they're blowing through that bullpen. And I mean, yeah, they get these two days off, but you got to be careful. You can't go blowing through people left and right here. And especially when you got your one of your aces in Zach Wheeler, who only had three strikeouts yesterday, Paul. The entire all the relievers combined yesterday had the same amount of strikeouts as Zach Wheeler in five innings here. And that's, you know, you I personally I say Noel's your ace, but you know, 
So they're going to disagree with me here, as you were just talking about. Well, lately he has been, and I think it's like either way. I think that's that's kind of the thing about both of these teams is you know you would say on paper Wheeler and Verlander are your aces, but the way the performances have gone from Valdez, and and I think more so Valdez than than maybe Nola in terms of like Valdez in the last year, you know, has really kind of the torch has been passed. You know, Verlander came back from injury this year. Of course, he's the legendary Justin Verlander. But in his absence, Valdez was their best pitcher last season. For for you know all intents and purposes, they have great pitching uh, up and down anyway. But Valdez has kind of taken the mantle. And I think Wheeler is still kind of like hasn't had that wrestled away from him. But I think at the same time, it's kind of a split ace situation in the sense that Nola's been there longer. So he's like a long tenured Philly. He's finally there. Wheeler was the free agent that came in a few years ago, but came in with more clout. So it's like by talent, Wheeler should be the ace. But Nola is kind of the established veteran leader. You know, so but but I think that's this series has been interesting with both teams, two top guys, how they fared, and now now it gets into the deep and the nitty gritty. And that was like on Houston, it's kind of the same way of the way Dusty used Luis Garcia in the tenth inning, and that was a guy that I thought he was going to start Game Three. I thought it was going to be Ranger Suarez versus Luis Garcia when I was trying to you know in my mind before the series kind of map out how I thought the starters were going to go for the first few games. So the fact that it's Noah Syndergaard. For the Phillies uh, versus Lance McCullers for Houston, it's not surprising. I think the the matchup favors Houston, but at the same time, McCullers has not been great on you know at home this or I'm sorry on the road this season. So and, you know I think that that's something to be said too. So it's it's really going to be interesting to see what happens in Philadelphia. Game three is going to be so pivotal. Uh, pivotal. I, I think it'd be it'd be so. Hard to imagine the Phillies winning Game One and Game Three and not winning this series. So I think it's huge for them. I think to like get that home field advantage and keep it, even if it's tied after Game Four. You know, you still have that advantage of like, okay, you can get the swing game in Game Five if it, if it's like that. Honestly, though, the way I kind of see it going down, I think the Astros are going to get at least two. I think they can get the sweep and it'll be over where it doesn't go back to Houston. But if not, I could see Astros coming back to Houston with the 3-2 lead and closing it out on Friday. You shut your mouth. Oh, you, you still, you're still on the trash can game? I can't get over it, Paul, but that's, that's just what it is, really, why I don't want to root for them. I don't see Dusty Baker as Mr. Clutch. And the uh, rumor that this could be his last season, too, I mean, could really mean he's... Well, that's a- affected us locally, too, because now mm-hmm. the report was Scott Merkin was saying, which, I mean, you know, Merkin's a legit writer. He's the MLB.com White Sox beat writer, says that Joe Espada's out of the running to be the next White Sox manager. And then on top of that, we know Chuck Garfine, who would be a, a good source for this piece of news, said that Ozzy has, in fact, interviewed with the White Sox. We're getting Ozzy back, aren't we? I know. The most White Sox thing to do would be to hire Ozzy and probably announce it right when the World Series is over just to get rid of the Espada rumors. At the same time, now that you know Merkin's already kind of reporting, it, we're basically waiting for what Bob Nightingale says. <laughs> That's all I want. The history, I'm not sorry, the history of the future from Bob Nightingale. Maybe Bob can tell us who's going to win this World Series. Maybe, but I, I think it'll be Astros from here on out. I predicted the sweep, which obviously that's going to be wrong. Astros in five. If not, Astros in six. It's going to be Astros. Oh, you know what, Paul? Get your head over his trash can. Ah! I'm fallen, and I can't get up. Okay, bottom line, I need an extracurricular activity, and no one else will coach you lovable losers. We're not losers. Last year, we finished 6-5. and five. And we're not lovable. We had a tall, freckle-faced kid on the team that we picked on till he quit. Hey, Splatterface, how's the weather up there? It's too bad, because he's a great hitter, but it's worth it. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to talk about, the managerial searches going on right now. Marlins have named Skip... Schumacher, their manager, so his first gig. Uh, he was a bench coach with the Cardinals, uh, been around the league, and um, they're they're high on him. I thought it was going to be Matt Quattraro. He was he was a finalist, uh, but they you know they go with him. And then uh, the uh, the Rangers naming Bruce Bochy, and I think that was a surprise seeing Bochy come out of retirement. I know Bochy never really ruled out that um, that he wasn't going to manage again. Um, he was rumored to be attached to the White Sox when they were looking for a manager before they hired Tony La Russa two years ago. 
he was attached to them again, but not in any seriousness that we've been seeing with other names of the White Sox, like Joe Espada, who actually was uh, just taken off the list by Scott Merkin, according to a source, uh, Merkin with MLB.com. You know, and then Ozzie Guillen attached to the White Sox uh, with uh, what Chuck Garfine from NBC Sports Chicago, who works with Guillen on the uh, post-game shows here in Chicago. Um, you know, so I would trust him on a source like that, saying uh, Guillen got an interview with the White Sox. So an interesting managerial search process so far with the teams that haven't named managers and even with the teams that have named managers. But um, Bochi going to the Rangers, I think, is going to be interesting. And I think, you know, now that the Rangers have the stadium, they have some guys, look for them to be playing with house money now and building a, a winner very quickly. And I think especially if the Astros win the World Series this year, maybe you're going to see Dusty Baker step down. Maybe you're going to see Joe Spada take over for the Astros. Maybe you're going to see some transition in the American League West. Who's to say that the Mariners are necessarily the future of that division? So it makes you wonder if the Texas Rangers have something up their sleeves. Now, when you think of the Arlington, Texas in that area, there is a major free agent pitcher that grew up in that area that might want to finish off his career close to home, and that's Clayton Kershaw. So this is a a speculation of mine is that Bochy and Kershaw are going to be there next year. We know Bochy is already going to be there, but maybe Kershaw is going to be part of that rotation next season. Maybe you're going to see some big moves made this offseason by the Rangers. How much money are they going to spend? What's that payroll going to look like? Are they going to be one of the bigger spenders in Major League Baseball and the American League? And can we expect them to win an American League West anytime soon with Bruce Bochy? And as many of you know, the Marvelous one, Dan Marver, Mike Mercado and myself, Devin Tingle, we joined the godfather of the sports cubicle, Jerry Riles, last Thursday at Dee's Place out in Glenview. And in case you weren't able to attend it or didn't, you know, watch the video, here's a little snippet of what you missed. Here's a big question, Mercado. <laughs> Dan Snyder <laughs> with the commanders. Hey, listen, you're not taking my team away from me. You take my team away from me. Roger Goodell, you owners, I got dirt on you, and I can blow up the NFL. The Joker. Dan Snyder became the Joker. Is that not crazy? But that goes to show, too, the power dynamic in these sports that it isn't just players complaining when you're or cheerleaders complaining when you've seen this systematic stuff that you're seeing from Dan Snyder and how hard it is to get him out of ownership compared to what we saw in the Clippers situation. Because we actually did see, right. a, uh, we did have audio. What we're seeing with Sarver and Phoenix. Right. So it is going to be interesting to see what a team that's worth $3 billion. Right. And that Jeff Bezos can't get his hands on. So what is it that Dan Snyder does actually have on but uh, that's the, but, the, but the thing is, he said, I can blow up this league. He can blow up the NFL. Can you imagine? I mean, concussions having yet, right? I mean, think about that. It's crazy that he has that confidence, but it's also him. He he has that delusional idea. But is it delusional? I mean, look at look. Go ahead. Well, we saw with the Gruden emails, who was one of the guys in there? Snyder. I mean, you know, when they took Gruden down, I think Snyder may have a little bit more dirt dirt on everyone else. I mean, he kept the team called the Redskins all the way up to what twenty twenty. When this like that name should be retired thirty years ago, right? I mean, but think about it, Jerry Jones. He's been in the news over the few years with you know his uh, transgressions, you know, away from the sport. Uh, Jim Irsay, that guy, I mean, drugs and 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 guns and everything, and he's still ownership. So if we know those, just those two characters publicly, publicly, what they've done, you got to believe that that Snyder, yeah. marvelous, he's he's got some dirt on some people, and expect, and he said Roger Goodell. I mean. This guy could be delusional or not, but he's a walking time bomb, and he's got to be very. It's like walking in a, a you know a minefield. They the owners, I think, have to be very careful. And he said, "You are not taking my team away from me." And, and, and he'll probably win that argument. And don't craft himself had some shenanigans down in Florida, <laughs> so nobody's nobody right. cl- nobody's completely clean. Right, exactly. So, there's dirt both ways if they really want to find something you know they could find something some skeleton in, in snyder's closet too if they needed to but here's the thing again and you talked about the blacks in particular these these players who are trying to you know get all the capital that they can to the position themselves let's just say in a you know in a, in a world out there that he, he 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 throws the bombshell and throw these guys under the bus and the nfl is rock it positions there, there there's a leverage change there, it maybe it becomes an even playing field now that these guys come to the table and say, "Okay, we want to own one of these teams." 
I mean, I, it, it's, it's, it's far, far, far away. But the yeah. point of the matter is, who knows what would happen if he literally came out with the dirt on these guys and, and, and blew up the league. And I think what we also have to keep in mind is when you're, th- when you're talking about these owners who are forced to, tra- to get rid of their teams, their punishment is $3 billion, $4 billion. So Snyder's going to be just fine. That's what my, this is more of a pride thing with him at this point. You don't just, when you're somebody like Dan Snyder, you just don't own the Washington Commanders because you love the NFL. You own it because it's a cool toy to show to your other multi-billion dollar friends. So he's going to make a lot of money out of it. And just so you have an idea of how much money these NFL teams are making, the Bulls were just estimated to be worth $4 billion if they were sold today. The Chicago Bulls, that's not with Michael Jordan right now. That's not with the championship number seven. So what are these NFL teams that are building 80,000 people stadiums are going to be worth? Dan Snyder is going to be just fine. And that's the shame in this is the gross negligence that we saw from Washington, whether it was dealing with hostile work environments, sexual harassment, racism. He's going to get away with that much money. And that to me is the biggest shame that we're going to see from this entire story. You think that's that's shameful? Because he gonna... makes that much money that he can make billions of dollars. That his punishment for selling his Washington well, his punishment is $4 billion. His punishment is getting out of the fraternity. His, his fraternity is getting out of the, the old boys club, right? A fraternity, but how much of a fraternity does he love if he's willing to blow it up? Well, I mean, if they, what he feels like turning against him or trying to force him out, he's like, okay, it's like a, a jilted lover, right? You break up with your girlfriend, correct? And then... She's like, okay, I'm going to tell everybody about this. Or you're going to say, I'm going to tell everybody about that. That's what jilted lovers do. And, and, and that's what he's doing. And he's forcing their hands to stay in this romance, stay in this relationship. So to be, in my opinion, it'll be interesting to, uh, you know, to see how this develops. But the fact that he came out and said, I got dirt on all you guys. You better believe there were owners across the league going, oh, my God, what the hell? Oh, my God. Oh, wait. Yes. I mean, <laughs> right? Well, it's scary, too, because when you look at how much money can be lost through all, all of this, they own an entire day. That's yeah. how much money is in stake right now, Thursday. Right. They own another day now. And right. now they're going for Saturday and Christmas. Yeah. So there's so much money in, on the line right now for all these owners, and a lot of them are – making sure did you check old emails did you delete old twitter accounts <laughs> yeah but they they they'll find I and mean, he's just going to keep his team he's going to keep his team yeah they can't force him out well they can but then you know again it's going to blow up the nfl and if you want to see that live you can either go to d's place in glenview or you can go to the rewind sports 60 roku channel or youtube channel i mean sounds like some great conversation to me now, please enjoy our interview with Paisley Curra. So over here in the sports cubicle, we do like to get a little political. We've done this a bunch. And with the midterms coming up in, what, a week now, guys, roughly? There's a lot at stake here. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about this a lot, but as three cis men here and not exactly doing a lot of research, we don't know a lot about this whole transgender athlete debate here. So I found someone to pull up. The professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and author of Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. Yeah, Paisley Curra. So Paisley, thank you for joining us on the show today. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. So Paisley, I want to talk right now. There are currently 18 states that have a transgender ban on athletes, especially the youth ones here. So I'm going to start with the big question that they keep accusing. Do transgender athletes have any advantage over cisgendered people? Well, the, the legislation that they've passed doesn't really speak to any particular problems. Like the legislation that they passed might be described as like a solution in term, a solution in search of a problem, because the legislation um, covers you know uh, school and college participation in sports. And um, when it comes to like elite sports, that's already governed by the whatever sports associations like swimming, tennis, you know, track and field. They have their own policies and they're working through policies on transgender participation. So it's not necessary for legislatures to weigh in on that. So the, the legis- this legislation is really targeting like middle school and high school kids at the non-elite level. And that is where it really is. Um, it's really just uh, a part of enrolling transgender people in the culture wars to uh, to create problems where none exists. 
Paisley, this is Mike here. Uh, I have this, you know, you gave us a lot of great info there kind of to get this conversation started. But for those who are just joining us, who are new to this subject matter, who well, there's a lot of nuance in this conversation. When we're talking about transgender and we're talking about athletes or just everyday life, are how do we quantify this? Is it by what people are taking by hormones or whether they've done a, a operation, have they done a transition? What When we're talking about transgender, I know it's a, a very big blanket umbrella statement, but when we're in this subject matter, how will we define it? Right. That's a very good question, Mike. So when it comes to transgender, um, transgender athletes, uh, the policies basically address, um, the, the people's transition in relation to hormones. Um, like many transgender people have some sorts of surgery in, in terms of um, changing their genitals and so on, but that doesn't really have any effect on athletic performance, the shape of your genitals. So the, the policies really have got to do with um, um, uh, people's hormone levels or the policies that the sports, the sports uh, associations are addressing. Um, the, the legislation that the Republicans have passed are just about whether someone is transgender or not, and that's um, anybody who's transgender is just automatically in much of this legislation barred from participating. So the, the sports associations are much more um, have a much more sophisticated approach in terms of looking at like making sure that no one that the policies are as inclusive as possible and no one has an unfair advantage. So a common policy would be to say someone has to be on you know hormone depressing um, medication or hormones for a year or two before they can compete. And that's like a, a, a pretty common policy. Uh, but that's not what's happening in this legislation. How long do hormone blockers take effect? I, I see policies that require athletes that transition from male to female to take hormone blockers for at least a year before they're able to compete in, in women's sports. Is that too much time or is that an adequate amount of time for these hormone blockers to take effect? Well, you know, I'm not a medical person. I'm a political science policy person. So, but my understanding is that a year is a year is is a pretty reasonable amount of time uh, to 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 require for the hormone blockers. The key thing is, I just wrote an op-ed in Nature. The key thing is, there needs to be more studies on um, on the effects of hormone block blockers, and more studies to compare cis women athletes with trans women athletes. Because a lot of the discourse and the rhetoric around sports participation is about comparing men to women. Um, and what we really need to do is compare cis women to trans women and see if who has any unfair advantages. So, for example, trans women on hormone blockers, trans women might have gone through a male puberty and they might have bigger frames. And then people think, oh, well, they have their bigger, got bigger bones. But then if you, you know, go on hormone blockers and take hormones, then you have these bigger bones and then less muscle mass to carry those bones around. So there's ways in which trans women can be at a disadvantage. Um, so what we need is actually just much, you know, more studies on it and less and less rhetoric and politics. Paisley, this is something that I've kind of rattled around my brain since this conversation really came to the forefront, and it has now been something that we all have to do our part to make sure that we're having these conversations. And I, I wonder misogyny in all this, because you talked about the transition from men to women's sports, and I think a lot of people, it, it comes down to that in the general public. You can't have this grown man going against petite women. How dare you? Do you think a lot of it, a lot of the pushback from the, the average Joe, the average person, and not somebody who's trying to do this for a political reason, but somebody who's just trying to have somebody who's trying to figure this out in this new changing world that a lot of it is based off of the idea that men are just more physically superior than women. Yeah, I think I think a certain kind of sexism about women's participation in sports underlays some of it. And I think what the people are con sometimes for people, the image is conjured up. It's like, yeah, like you said, some grown person looks like a grown man mm. competing against petite women. But that's that's really not the situation. Like someone who's transitioning and going on hormone blockers and taking hormones is not like a it's not like a cisgender grown man. Um, but I think misogyny comes into it in other ways, and it especially shows up in these bills that have passed um, in the legislatures. Like, for example, in Utah, they passed a bill. You can't. It's trans girls can't participate in girls' teams. Um, and a judge blocked the bill temporarily. But in the meantime, what we've learned is is that parents have requested investigations of um, of athletes who have have won events. So one girl, her gender was investigated through her school records, going all the way back to the first grade or all the way back to kindergarten, looking at her doctor's records 
And she's just a cisgender girl. But the parents of the other girls who lost to her thought maybe there's something gender nonconforming about her, so she her gender had to be investigated. And that's how I see the larger effects of these bills. It's just like misogynistic. Like, I have a 13-year-old girl, and I mean, the idea that her gender would be investigated by a panel of Republican officials if she were to participate in sports as a cis kid would just mean she would never want to participate in sports. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit going, it goes beyond transgender kids in the system to like actually kind of investigating anybody who, you know, comes off as in any way gender nonconforming. Now, Paisley, the big attack I see a lot is mostly on the trans girls, and there are just probably just as many trans boys playing with cisgender boys here. I never see the attack on the trans boys as much as the trans girls. And you think it's a thing of misogyny or is it going back to like what Mike said? It's like, oh, well, men are just naturally bigger than women. So that's a disfair advantage because it's on both sides. Let's be real here. Yeah, so definitely trans boys are playing in boys teams and so on. Um, but there's no sense, there's no kind of common sense that they have any advantage in those teams. So the legislation, almost all the legislation, is really directed toward trans girls, and it's directed um, towards the idea that like they are, are competing unfairly. So the trans boys just sort of drop out of it. But that doesn't mean that the anti-trans discourse that's fooling around in Republican legislatures doesn't have effect on, on trans kids of all genders. Um, but, but the trans the trans boys kind of just kind of fall out of the picture. It, it seems like with some of the legislation that has been passed, there's been uh, at least three cases of Republican governors vetoing bills that were brought forth by Republican-dominated legislatures. Does it seem like that this is a, a national conversation that seems to be something where you're seeing a lot of people kind of change their minds or at least be a little bit now more open to the dialogue where we haven't seen them open to this dialogue maybe a decade ago? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Like in Utah, um, Governor Cox, who's a Republican, he vetoed the bill. He vetoed the bill, and he gave this really incredible veto speech. He pointed out that there were 75,000 high school athletes in Utah, and there was one transgender girl, and uh, no questions have been raised about her participation. And he said, rarely has so much fear and anger been directed at so few. And he vetoed the bill. And then the re- legislature came back and overrode his, his veto. But it, it does show that, like, when people are presented with, like, some evidence and um, expert testimony, they understand that the politics are really out of whack with what's going on on the ground in terms of, like, the the ability of, of kids to play teams. Because this is – a lot of people are worried about, like, the elite athletes. And the, the athletic associations are, like, looking at that. So, really, a lot of these, this legislation is just about making sure some middle school kid can't play in the ground volleyball team like it's not really furthering any important governmental objective it's just about kind of fomenting transphobia and the culture wars if you're just tuning in we're talking to paisley Kura, the author of sex is as sex does governing transgender identity and mike you got a question paisley we're having this great conversation i just keep coming back to this whether it was colin kaepernick and the way donald trump used it or where we're at now with the transgender movement and making sure that everybody has their equal rights to play these sports that we love or just live life the way we should it seems to me that sports are just being used as a trojan horse for some of these just downright bigotry moves legislation that we've been hearing about you seeing this and doing some of these you know seeing these surveys and studies and statistics and in your teachings and studying and whatnot how much have you noticed that over the last five six seven years just sports being used to worm these these horrible bigotry moves that we've been seeing yeah, I think that's a really good point, because a few years ago it was bathrooms and anti-trans bathroom legislation, and then the, the new move has been to kind of sports le- sports legislation, because it plays on people's fears of unfair competition, but it also it also shows that like sports play this bigger role in the culture than, than sports itself. Like, it assumes this, assumes this incredible symbolic importance, and so, uh, you know, sports is uh, it's like the new uh, proving ground for transgender transgender Republicans. They are, sorry, not transgender. Republicans, anti-transgender Republicans. Um, one of the things we've seen in public opinion is that public opinion on transgender people has generally been getting more and more positive every year. But recently, we've seen a bit of a partisan divide, like the Republicans are becoming a little bit less supportive of transgender equality. And that is a direct result of like the concerted messaging, um, the concerted anti-trans messaging. 
that the Republicans are doing, and it's starting to it's actually starting to have an effect because I think people are are affected by the by the you know the cable news networks and the messages they get from their elected officials. Uh, and what we should really be doing is kind of paying attention to the folks in our community and think: Does that trans girl really need to be barred from the tenth grade intramural volleyball team? It's like, is that really a, a matter of vital national interest? Um, so I think that's that's one of the problems we're seeing. Paisley, we really appreciate you making time for us and really enlightening us with this great conversation. We'll, we, as we wrap up this this wonderful, this eye-opening conversation, I, I guess my my thing, and I, for anybody listening to the Sports Cubicle, what can we do? What's next in this movement to help our, not just our transgender athletes, but just those in our community going through these transitions, and we're seeing so much attack towards them this election cycle. What is next for, you know, I know it's an overused term, but like allies, people who want to do better, whether they consider themselves an ally, what can they do? What is next process for us to try to really help out those that are going to need our help come November? Well, I think it's paying attention to what's happening at the local level, because that's where uh, that's where the Republicans are really good at activating their activists. So, for example, like local libraries getting rid of, of books around LGBT issues or school boards thinking about policies, banning trans kids or make not banning trans kids, but making it impossible for trans kids to use the pronouns associated with their gender identity. In addition to whatever sports policies like pay, pay, even if you don't have a trans family member of a trans kid, but like pay attention to what's happening in your school board because the right wing is very good at, at getting people to show up at those kinds of meetings. Um, and uh, the progressive progressive are not as good at that. So that would be a good way to be an ally. Paisley, we got one week till the midterm elections here. And we've been using this a lot, but this seems like another one of the most important elections of our lifetimes. And for just trans people right now, how important are these upcoming midterms? Well, they're so important because the Republicans at the federal level in Congress have, are proposing some incredibly draconian legislation. Excuse me. Some legislation is like a, a kind of a don't say gay bill, a don't say LGBT bill at the federal level, which would ban any institution that receives any federal funding which is like most schools and universities and, and other institutions, from ever using the words gender identity or transgender or LGBT or gay or sexual orientation in most of their work. And so that's a Republican bill that was introduced by Representative Johnson in Congress. And if they get, the, if they get control of the House, that could, that could go forward, and, and also the Senate. So it's really quite important that people um, pay attention and, 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 and show up uh, at the polls uh, next month. Paisley Kerr, author of The Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. Paisley, if anyone wants to buy your book or find you on social media, where can they go? Well, they can buy that book at the usual suspects, but if you go to NYU Press, their website, and you put Curra30, C-U-R-R-A-H, then you get 30% off, and it's like 19 bucks. So uh, that's a nice way to buy it. <laughs> and they want to find you on the socials? Oh, social, yeah. My name, uh, Paisley Kura on Twitter. Just like, no one in the world has my name. So if you could just <laughs> find me pretty easily. P-A-I-S-L-E-Y-C-U-R-R-A-H. Paisley, thank you so much for joining us right now. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening to the Sports Cubicle today. You know, for the Paulacious one, Paul Shavari, the Marvelous one, Dan Marver, Mike Mercado, we need to get a nickname for you soon enough. I'm Devin Tingle here. Santia Jackson starts off your day at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. And I normally say have a good night, but today I'm going to say vote, 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 vote. Have a good night.